Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. This episode is proudly sponsored by Vivino, the world's largest online wine marketplace. The Vivino app makes it easy to choose wine. Enjoy expert team support, door-to-door delivery, and honest wine reviews to help you choose the perfect wine for every occasion. Vivino, download the app on Apple or Android and discover an easier way to choose wine. Hi. This is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's show. Uh, today, I'm very pleased to have as a guest Liza Zimmerman, aka Liza the Wine Chick, who I've known in a number of positions in the industry. But Liza, welcome to the show, and why don't you give us a little background on uh, how you got here? Thank you for inviting me, Steve. It's it's fun to be here. Um, so my passion and interest in wine really started in Italy. I had... Uh, Spent a year studying in Florence and was lucky enough to get a work permit. And when I graduated from Northwestern, I moved back to Rome and basically taught English as a second language for a couple of years. But I was very um, invested in eating and drinking all the wonderful food there. And it was what I kind of dedicated most of my time and energy to. And I ended up teaching English to the editor of the Gambaro Rosso, which is the main wine magazine there. And alarm bells went off in my head and I said, ding, 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 my God, people write about wine and food for a living. You don't have to just eat and drink recreationally. Um, So I decided to move back to New York, where I'm from, to write about wine and food. I am bilingual, but English is my first language. And I was lucky enough to work for two different Italian magazines, uh, Cucina, uh, which was part of the Gruppo Ristoratori Italiani, and the magazine La Cucina Italiana. And I loved writing about wine and food, but as I did so for many years, I realized that I thought the wine people were more invested in both wine and food and how they work together than the food writers. And you'd find food publications discussing the depth at which a tomato was grown and at what angle with what type of soil, and then they'd serve it with red wine. So I decided I really wanted to make a move towards the wine side of the business and ended up working at wine enthusiasts, running their tastings briefly, and ended up working for Marvin Schenken for a decade as the editor of Market Watch, which is the trade arm of Wine Spectator. Then uh, left there to work the business side of the business, was an importer and distributor in Seattle for a year, didn't love sales, headed down to San Francisco and started freelancing, consulting and writing again, um, which I've been doing since then. Long answer to a short question. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, and it's one that it's one that really intrigues me for how you like the idea of a freelance journalist as opposed to an, a staff editorial position. You've had the experience of working as a staff editor and or writer for a couple of publications, and now you're doing a whole lot of things from the uh, journalism point of view. You're writing for a number of different publications. What is that experience like as opposed to having a day job doing it where you get a salary? 
really love the diversity of freelancing, and uh, it's really kind of led me into I'm I'm really a legal reporter and a business reporter. I really love doing trade writing and supplying all our great restaurateurs and retailers and psalms with the info, you know, legal info and news and trend info they need. Um, I did the consumer magazine thing for so many years, and I I hit a point. I said, if another housewife asked me what's so special about Aceto Balsamico, I'm going to kill her. So I, I love working with professionals. It's been very <laughs> gratifying. And I do write um, primarily for Forbes and Wine Searcher. Not afraid to make to uh, take take a position. Wine Searcher in particular, your partner in crime is Blake Gray. And he's, he's known to have an opinion or two. You want to comment on that? <laughs> yes. Oh, I completely respect Blake. And, and while I was in San Francisco, and still we, we cover a lot of similar things, and Blake actually was a legal reporter. And Blake is who the editor of Wine Searcher chose to be the American contributor. So we do kind of compete for some stories. But I think we, you know, we're friends and I, we respect each other. Cool. In addition to writing, a big part of what you do is consulting. We're going to get into some of that in terms of the uh, wineries that you work for. But but talk us, what are some of the consulting things that you do? I do a wide range of consulting from consumer wine education events for team building. I had a whole series of like legally themed events uh, called Raising the Bar that was a lot of fun pre-pandemic in San Francisco with a lot of law firms. But I also consult with regions, wineries, publicists here on content, how to engage different writers and editors, because I feel oftentimes they're just pitching a small group of wine writers in New York and San Francisco who are inundated. So I've done a lot of projects about reaching out to, say, Atlanta Life magazine, you know, the Houston City magazine, and how to position the content. I also do a lot of educational projects. I've worked for Canon Yena, Rias Baixas, surprising a lot of Spanish entities and regions, you know, that I also love. I also speak a lot about the three-tier system and try to help producers here and abroad understand how to get wines into this very complicated market. So I've, I've spoken both in English and Italian. I spoke in Palermo a couple of years ago in Italian, trying desperately to help a lot of producers navigate the system. And there, there was quite a lot of commotion about how crazy and difficult our our wine sales system is. I brokered a number of brands in. I also work with um, different Italian publicists that have different regions and brands to put on educational events that generate both coverage from the media that attend and also get brands picked up and sold here because due to 25 years in the magazine business, I have a wonderful personal database of about 10,000 key contacts, all the wholesalers, the the importers, the Psalms, and, you know, people like Mel Dick at Southern actually pick up their cell phone for me. So that's great. And I've really been able to leverage those contacts to make a lot of things happen for brands I believe in. Okay. So making this specifically relevant for what's happening this week, Wine to Wine is taking place in Verona. Many of the wineries that attend Wine to Wine and Vinitaly itself are looking for U.S. representation. One of the reasons I wrote the book, how to get U.S. market ready is because I got tired of telling the same story over again about how they need to understand the U.S. market. So you can be an, an advocate for them and helping them make those connections. How willing are you to take those things on? And what are the requirements that you look for from a winery? You're not going to take every winery that calls. We'll get into Sicily in a moment. I think, yeah, brokering in wines, it, it's tough. I mean, people see this as a big market 
you know, and, and easy, you know, an easy target. Oh, because there are millions of Americans and they drink a lot of wine. I don't think they understand how inundated this market is and the, the myriad of choices that we have. And nor do they understand really how the three-tier system, I mean, makes this, we're not one market, but we're 50 markets. And it's very hard because the buying habits and standards in Europe are so different for them to get their, their brains wrapped around this. So if I were to take on a brand, I'm looking for an exceptional you know, wine quality. And I'm looking for somebody smart who's ready to kind of have the patience and know how to enter the market. That's something else I see a lot with foreign producers. They say, oh, it's a huge market. Let's just jump on it. And it really, really takes time, time and effort and, and a market presence. And I would want to work with a brand that's also willing to have somebody here in the States to monitor sales. It's not, you know, a magic trick getting the brand in here and then it's going to sit on the shelf because uh, distributors are going to focus on selling other brands. So most of the brands I brought in are Italian. It's just sort of a natural synergy for me being bilingual. Um, and I worked a lot with Southern Italian brands because I absolutely love the grapes. I helped Peter Vindig Deers, who's a Danish count who worked in uh, Tokai, founded Royal Tokai, brilliant guy. I helped broker in um, his Monte Carubo brand to Texas and some of the states around there. And they're, they're just exceptional wines. He's making Syrah and Noto, which is, Syrah is kind of on the rise in Sicily, but it's not the first grape that you think of. So that was very gratifying. And then I've also worked with uh, Luigi Rubino in Puglia and helping him bring in the brands to a number of states. I think the producers need to understand, like, also, you, you can't just be on a sales percentage for this. You need some kind of retainer because it is so much work reaching out, you know, and making sure that the wines get to the right people, trying to get these appointments. Uh, it's challenging. And well, now everything's different now in the pandemic. All of this was pre-pandemic. So, yeah. Right. The world is different. Okay, let's let's head down south to uh, Sicily. You've mentioned it a number of times. You told me earlier in a conversation that you're passionate about volcanic wines and Sicilian wines in particular. Tell me more about where does this interest come from and um, what kind of receptivity are you finding in the United States for those wines? Well, I'm, I'm a huge Italophile. I've never lived in Sicily. I've spent several months doing marketing projects down there, but I've never officially lived there. But I've always been, ever since Leonardo Locascio, in the mid-90s, which is when I came back from Italy, started putting Southern Italian grapes. He is Sicilian and he is from Palermo on the map. I've been passionate about them. And I, I liked Nerodavola initially, which was the red that kind of more commercial that people pushed. But as I spent more time, you know, in Sicily, I started discovering grapes I'm crazy about, like Nerodavola Mascalese and Frappato. And those are grapes, they're indigenous grapes that you mostly find um, Western Sicily, around Marsala, around Trapani. Absolutely fabulous. A lot of producers are doing single varietal estate wines with these. And I love them. And then when you kind of hop into the whites, indigenous ones like Insolia and Catturato, they're doing these fabulous blends with Chardonnay. I'm not a huge Chardonnay fan, you know, in Purezza, like 100%. Chardonnay, but I love it when they mix it up with some of these indigenous varieties. They're fresh, they're fruity, they're citric. Sicily is also really affordable. The food is dynamite. People are welcoming. Um, lots of North African influence. I mean, both on the dialect and the food, because when you think about it, North Africa is actually closer to Sicily than, than mainland Italy. I just feel like it's a place that is really discovering and rediscovering itself. And it's a very dynamic time. And I, I can't wait. I'm going um, in two weeks to spend a week in uh, Catania. And for me, it's not solely about Etna. I mean, I have been, you know, to Etna myriad times. I enjoy the volcanic wines, but I'm much more a, 
a Western Sicily person, honestly. And I feel like too much of the attention has been focused on that. Now, they're wonderful wines, but I would like to see the rest of the island, um, you know, get, get some attention and some love. Okay. What kind of receptivity has there been for Sicilian wines in general and the Western ones, as you're talking about? I mean, I, I don't see a lot there. That doesn't mean they're, you know, they're not in the U.S., but, you know, beyond Nero Davila and the whole volcanic wine thing. And I think people like Alder Yarrow getting behind that movement helps it immensely as well. Um, do you see much presence in the U.S.? And if there's no presence, how can people find these wines? Um, I really don't, sadly. I see a lot of Nero Davila, which I think we were all excited about when it first came in the market. Again, going back to Leonardo Locascio and wine boat 25 years ago, but as these wines have evolved, I just, I don't think they're the finest example for the most part of, of what can be done there. I mean, I think they're easy drinking wines and they're affordable wines, but again, um, you don't see the indigenous varietals very often, you know, and, and then you have some brands like Coase. I mean, there are brands that have been kind of fetishized, you know, volcanic wines and um, wines that use Palmenti, the, the old system of gravity flow wineries. I mean, there's a, a whole book that was written about that. I don't quite know. A lot of these producers are little. A lot of them are cooperatives and they don't know how to navigate the market. It's it's hard. I scour the shelves um, when I go in stores or restaurants and I really jump on anything uh, unusual Sicilian that that's out there. I guess I'm hoping existing importers will dig deeper and I'm hoping some of the brands will reach out to folks like us that perhaps we can guide them into the hands of the right importers. So let's talk a little bit about COVID and how that's impacting the whole import business. I had a conversation with um, one of the uh, logistics companies we work with, and they were citing three to five X increases over what just the shipping costs alone were prior to COVID. doesn't look like that's going to get solved anytime soon. They're talking about end of 2022 before things kind of reach some level of, you know, balance. That's the problem right now. It's out of balance. But so <laughs> what other things has COVID wrought in the world of wine and how are you dealing with it? I think it's, I mean, the pandemic destroyed our restaurants um, around the country. I mean, there are statistics saying something like 60% of them may not survive this and they led to huge amounts of off-premise sales. I mean, the retailers have definitely benefited from people staying home, cooking at home. And I think that is beginning to rebalance. But I think, yeah, we won't see a lot of restaurants. And I think we're going to see notable changes in wine programs. Um, I recently left San Francisco, but some of the fancier restaurants like Harris's, which is a well-known steakhouse that I lived a couple blocks from, they, they started during the pandemic selling off their library wines. You could just stop in the street and get get a screaming deal. So I think when some of the fine dining establishments go back into service, the, the depth and breadth of wine lists is just not going to be there. They're not going to be those library wines as there once were. I think the buy the glass programs are going to be more limited and simple. It's, you know, it's, it's shame, really. So it's going to change the dynamics of what's available for consumers and also how it's presented. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about the organization of wine lists and the words that are used to describe them. And I've, I've heard many sides of many different coins. I wanted to add also with the retail sector, I mean, we're ha seeing the growth of huge chains like Total Wines and more opening stores all over the country, you know, even in markets like New York, where they're only allowed to have one, but they're doing all kinds of winery direct brands and they're developing, for instance, I spent some time in Bulgaria and I like Bulgarian wines. You go in there and they've got 10 different Gamzas, which is an indigenous grape. 
Um, and they're really taking over huge market share. And it, it's exciting because you're seeing all these wonderful esoteric wines, but there is concern, obviously, in the industry that they're going to become the Walgreens or, you know, Rite Aid um, of the, the wine world and that we're no longer going to be able to find the wines that are not exciting the execs at total. And that's that's a concern. So that opens the door to um, talking about e-commerce. And one of the, the, the benefits that e-commerce brings is a, is a virtual inventory as a concept and the long tail of uh, types of wines that they can carry. So while a retail store may only have two to 10,000 SKUs, depending on where you are and how big it is, people want to shop in a much larger range of wines. They can do that. The internet is set up to do that, but we're just not familiar with shopping that way. Although we're seeing, I've been talking to a number of retailers lately, that the way people shop is completely different. They may still buy from a brick and mortar retailer, but they may never go into physically the brick and mortar store. This is true. It certainly started with younger demographics because they want to, you know, be on their iPhone, you know, in the subway in New York and buy the wine and have it there when they get home. But I mean, it has slurped over obviously into other demographics and everybody just wants to buy from the, the comfort of their home, um, which is not always an ideal thing because there's something special about going into a shop and, you know, developing a relationship with a clerk and, and talking a little bit about, I like wines like this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, I have relationships. I mean, I have a, you know, a guy in New York, when I go back, I think it's, it's Columbus Wine and Spirits named Neil Weinstock. And he's great. He worked at Beacon in New York too. And I mean, he knows my pal and I just say, Neil, I'm rolling into New York. Can you put a case together for me and my mother, which is very interesting because she hates Chardonnay, hates acidic wines. So it's very difficult to put something together for two people with such different palettes, but he manages. But I think with e-commerce, people are finding rating systems, you know, sharing, you know, what their peers liked. Wine.com just came out with this new service called Picked that they, it's actually smack on. They ask you um, four or five questions, maybe more about your palate. They sent me Gruner, Veltliner, and all these beautiful wines that that I love. So I think people are probably availing themselves of programs like that uh, more frequently. Mm-hmm. What I see is that when you're engaging somebody in a conversation in a store, they can be walking you over here, talking about this. You could hold the wine in your hand and so forth. When they're doing it online, I think this a younger generation is more comfortable doing that type of conversation online, which may not be, you know, all at the same time. It may be asynchronous, that they may be looking at something and asking questions and getting texts back and so forth. But that is the preferred way that they they like to do things. So if, if that's not going to be there for them, and we've seen a whole lot of new apps come out that try and help people figure out what their tastes are, one of the fundamental problems is the language we use, which is like really bad meaning simplistic and not very descriptive, or overly so descriptive and not very useful, like fried gooseberries. Or just some of the questions at some of these apps, like, do you like chocolate or not? And and honestly, my grandfather had a chocolate factory in Brooklyn. I ate so much chocolate as a kid that I, I, I'm a chocophobe at this point. So, But I, bottom line is, I don't really understand what liking or not liking chocolate, you know, dark chocolate or milk chocolate has to do with your taste in wines, how that translates. That, that's exactly my point, that they may be asking indicative questions about something, but when I when I think about a wine, okay, yeah, I like Cabernet Sauvignon, but I may like, like I don't like a lot of the uh, mid to lower price ones from America. They're too sweet. They're making them because the American palate is sweet. 
higher price wines are drier, but so I've kind of shied away from American wines simply because of that. Is that a trend that's real or is that just me interpreting what I'm tasting? I think that's an industry trend. I mean, I, I've been living on the West Coast now for almost 20 years in all three uh, of the states. And, and I, my, my palate was largely developed in Italy. So I skew, you know, towards drinking a lot of European wines. But I, I do think that's something, you know, we do in the industry. There's a bit of snobbism that, you know, is maybe merited because a lot, a lot of American wines are created, you know, with a sweeter taste profile for people. But I do think there are absolute gems, obviously, in all the three, you know, Western states. And even um, I went to Snake River in Idaho to make in some great wines, some of the Rieslings from the Finger Lakes. So, well, yeah, I guess every, each of the 50 states, in, including Kansas and New Mexico, New Mexico has Gruet, that sparkling wine that's blown the doors off of everybody for like sixteen ninety nine, and it's got a, a, a great reputation. So, and they're a Champenois family. You probably know that. I mean, that, that is the reason why they're able to produce that. I don't know why they chose Albuquerque, yeah, of all places, but yeah, I love it. I drink a ton of it. <laughs> but that's an industry secret, you know what I mean? It's not, I think it's us basically buying all the Gruet. I don't know that it's... Well, that's another big question. There's us and there's them. And I think, you know, one of the things that happen is uh, wine criticism and the 100-point uh, scoring system that uh, Parker had, had started almost distances everybody else who's not clued into that as to thinking they're dumb or they don't know enough or a lot about wines and add in the jargon of weird words, you know, like uh, a leather strop on a, you know, a, <laughs> a horse saddle or something like that. I finished um, the Wine Spirit Education Trust Diploma in 2000 when the world of wine was much smaller, but it just was so challenging. We would, you know, do tasting notes in, in New York. And I remember Brian Robinson, who was one of the uh, wine directors at Sotheby's or Christie's or both of them at some point is, is tasting this wine. And he's like, I'm getting cookie dough, which I thought was outrageously funny, but just our descriptors, it, we don't make it easy. I mean, we're kind of acting like the medical and the legal establishment and kind of creating our own language to keep people out and to keep them confused and to keep them paying us the big bucks to help them out in some ways. So turn that back into your life as a journalist and the words that you use. You're not doing wine criticism anymore. You're talking about the wine industry. I recognize that. But still in all, you know, with all the, the WSET stuff and anything else that you're involved where you're doing lectures, that comes into play. People are expecting to hear, well, what should I taste in this wine? How do you, when you're talking to people who are not new, necessarily new to the industry, but aren't overwhelmed by the industry, what they should look for, how they should taste critically. I believe wine is so subjective. That's why I really hate telling somebody, you know, you're going to get like road tar and, you know, and rat poop and, and gooseberries and things like that. I really encourage people to use their palate and, and, and try to see what they're tasting, you know. And when I do corporate events, because I've worked, you know, all over some of the big tech corps in Silicon Valley, you always get somebody who kind of hassles you and they're like, no, this is not uh, rat poop. It's goose poop in, in this wine. <laughs> <laughs> or cat's pee or, right, yeah. But, um, but there's, there's always somebody who heckles you in the crowd. But I just encourage people to, you know, get comfortable and describe things. And I do a lot of interactive activities too, which I think is fun seeing how sugar and salt and citrus um, interface with wine. And I think it helps get a discussion going or 
those gummies, you know, the little gummy bears, like if you chew one with your nose closed, you don't really taste anything. And it kind of shows that 70% of, of what you get off of wine is through your nose. So I try to, with novices, kind of get them comfortable through techniques like that. And I guess that's the whole thing is to, is to be comfortable with and give them permission to use their own words and, and your own likes and dislikes. Coming back to uh, the, the wine industry. So we're in COVID. We're not out of it yet. But a lot of the travel that I've done recently, I see a whole lot of people are not wearing masks. Get past that whole anti-vax question and issue. There's going to be a new normal coming. E-commerce is one piece of it. Are there other pieces that you see emerging um, that represent opportunities for players in the wine industry at varying levels? I think a bottle of wine can be, you know, a vacation in a bottle in some ways. I mean, it can help you revisit somewhere wonderful you've been or give you a taste experience of somewhere you'd like to go. I mean, as we may be traveling less, there is that opportunity, I think, for brands to bring us these these lifestyle experiences. I think we've all almost become more better cooks during this period. I mean, I know I was pretty up on my game, but I'm not super up on my game roasting chickens and sous viding pork loins and things like that. And I think I think it's going to change dining patterns a lot that people will really want to eat out for something exceptional. I, I don't want to pay a restaurant $32 for roast chicken when I can kill it at home and I can get, you know, not, not the chicken when I can, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You had me there for a moment. <laughs> no, but I was saying when I can roast it, I can get a beautiful organic chicken and I can roast it splendidly at home. I don't desire to do that. So I think dining is going to really shift to either like ethnic food, and I don't say that pejoratively, but Burmese food, Thai food, things that we do, we're not equipped to cook that have a lot of complicated ingredients are really exceptional multi-course molecular dining experiences. Like I just moved to Ashland, Oregon, which is a very small dynamic town in, in Southern Oregon. And we have a restaurant here called Moss and he's doing kind of Ilbuli style, gastronomic, molecular, very Japanese influenced things with, with a crazy intricate wine list. He just actually opened a, a raw bar about a week ago. I went last night, I'm going to do a story on it. And, um, oysters from all over the West Coast, crab preparations, uni toast. And his wine list is, it's half wine, half sake, but he's got orange wines. He's got pet nuts. He's got all kinds of, he has a yuzu sake on there that's coming in at about 7%, which is great if you have to drive. But I think that that type of cuisine leaves a lot of room for really esoteric wines to come into this market. And do you see uh, an expansion or contraction in the number and scope of importers that are out there that you're working with? Oh, d definitely. I mean, well, starting with the wholesale tier, I mean, it's been swiftly consolidating um, over the years. And we have, you know, really two, three really big players, um, you know, and when I do, you know, wine events for different publicists or regions, you know, I have to really warn them, you know, you'll be lucky to get one guy from Southern and one guy, you know, from Republic, you know, and there, there are so few of them. And the same thing, importers have been growing. I mean, Leonardo Lacascio, going back to him, because he's very seminal in my wine education when I returned to the States. I mean, he was once doing boutique Italian wines. He's got a Spanish wine division and he does German wines. I mean, he's pretty much retired, but some of these guys have just gotten so enormous. Um, it's a shame. And there are small guys out there, but it's, it's hard for brands to get traction with them because simply because the big distributors represent so many brands that people really, you say this delicately, need to stock a lot of them. And they're 
you know, may not be room for the smaller brands. That, I think that's the issue. Everybody looks at us and said, you're the biggest market in the world, but we still have since, because of the three-tier system, traditional brick and mortar restrictions on, on stocking and getting a product in, frankly, is really difficult, but it's also the easy part, getting it out, getting the consumer to buy it, getting the consumer to reach for it and recognize or, or recognize that it's something they might be interested in. We used to have a way I was taught was if it's not on, if it's not on the floor, it's not in the store. You may be able to get a one face if you're coming in with a limited number of SKUs that they give you one facing. Well, that's not going to go anywhere. You know, somebody brings in a broken case of three bottles or something. Once it's gone, it's forgotten. It's not going to get that kind of traction. So the challenge I see is how do we generate some reaction or acknowledgement or uh, awareness for a lot of these wines when, when we, we're all just inundated with all these screaming messages? It's a challenge. What do you what do you say to people like that? I think a lot of the consumer wine writing that's going on is is not helping. I mean, every time Eric Asimov from the New York Times writes about one specific wine, everybody who carries it in New York sells out of it, honestly. And I actually um, pitched him about a couple really relevant legal stories. You know, we recently had a, a case go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, and he literally said to me, he's like, why would you pitch uh, a newspaper with a wine writer? And I mean, my response would, would be, you're not covering these kinds of issues. You're harping on specific wines in specific regions. And I remember, was it Bon Appetit or one of the, the magazines listed all the specific wines, all the wines mentioned in this issue. And again, it's really hard. Those specific wines sell out. And I think in the consumer publications, we need more writing about general, like regions, grapes, things like that, that encourage people to explore and not just focus on on one wine. Uh, and, and that's something we do have in the trade that I mean, Wine Business Monthly, you, you name it, all these great publications, they take a look at, you know, trends in Texas, trends in Chardonnay, what's, you know, coming out of Rioja, how the region's evolving. But I, I really feel like the consumer wine writers would be doing us a, a big favor to, to broaden the range of what they're writing about and not drill down on specifics. Okay. Okay. We're kind of coming to the end, but um, one of the things I do would like to end each interview with, what's the big takeaway of the things that we talked about here? Is there something that listeners, and they can vary you know, from people in the industry, outside the industry, domestic, foreign, or the other way around, of what we talked about, what do you think is something someone can take away from this conversation? Well, I think for brands that want to be present in this country, uh, whether they're, you know, imports or domestic, you have to have patience. This is not an easy um, nut to crack. I think you need to reach out to and work with people in the know, like us, uh, like importers. I think for consumers, I would say explore, have fun, you know, mix it up, create a relationship with a clerk in a store, even if you don't want to go in. You know, I haven't seen my friend Neil in New York in, in, in ages, but I talk to him and he supplies me with what I want. And I always recommend when I do wine education, you know, get a mixed case. Say, you know, I like this kind of Dundee Hills Pinot out of Oregon and I'm interested in spending um, 15 to 17.99 and let him you know, mix up a, a case for you. And they know their inventory. I mean, they're, they're better suited than we are, who are not familiar with each individual SKU. You're limited to only the information that's available on the label, which is pretty skimpy at best. And I would say, you know, I'm not a fan of ratings. I always say find a wine writer whose palate you like, uh, who's similar to yours, and read him or her and, and, and buy those wines, as opposed to buying specific wines that are uh, with ratings that are obviously vintage-specific or estate vineyard-specific, and they're obviously going to sell out or cost 
10 times more perhaps than they should, question mark. Yeah, um, that's one of the questions I get a lot. Are, are expensive wines better? Well, you know, define better. You know, if you can't taste the difference, I'd say no. Though they may be, if you can't perceive it or you don't appreciate the difference, maybe not. But um you know, there's a lot going on between the brand value of the wine, the score, the familiarity of it. And, and we see that in social media and a whole lot of things. Also in terms of, you know, branding, I say a lot of times, don't don't buy the big brands. You're, you're helping pay for their advertising campaigns. I'm not going to name names, you know, and, and don't buy the cult grapes. I mean, we all know Pinot Noir, which we love, is a difficult grape to grow. It's expensive. So if you're looking at almost any region and Merlot has been so maligned and it's a great, great. I, I say to people, but if you have all the SKUs in front of you from any reason, buy the Merlot. It's going to be a couple bucks cheaper and it's going to be 10 times better in quality than the Pinot or, or the Cab. Yeah, well, it's a blending grape for Bordeaux varietals and all the wines of Pomerol or, or Saint Estef are Merlot based. So. Anyway, okay, Eliza, Eliza Zimmerman, would you like to share your social media handles or if somebody wanted to uh, reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to do that? So I'm, I'm Liza the Wine Chick. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I have my own site, uh, Liza, Liza the Wine Chick. I invite anybody who would like to put together uh, an event, needs help with um, content, pitching strategy, education, getting new brands in the market to reach out to me and be thrilled to put together a free proposal for you and see if we can work together to navigate this amazing but uh, tough market. Okay. Uh, that was Liza Zimmerman, Liza the Wine Chick. Liza, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk with us today. Thank you so much, Steve. And I look forward to seeing you somewhere around the world, but not over Zoom soon. <laughs> Hopefully with a good bottle of Italian wine in, in hand. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast. Hi, everybody. Italian Wine Podcast celebrates its fourth anniversary this year, and we all love the great content they put out every day. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People has become a big part of our day, and the team in Verona needs to feel our love. Producing the show is not easy, folks. Hurting all those hosts, getting the interviews, dropping the clubhouse recordings, not to mention editing all the material. Let's give them a tangible fan hug with a contribution to all their costs. Head to ItalianWinePodcast.com and click Donate to show your love.